This is Chapter 78 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, a veteran Washington, D.C. reporter gives us his take on President Trump's first year in office. There are currently a lot of books out there about the Trump administration as people inside and outside the White House assess the current state of the nation. In fact, books about the current president have filled the number one slot on the New York Times hardcover nonfiction list since mid-January. CBS News correspondent Major Garrett enters the fray this week with his book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, The Thrills, Chills, Screams and Occasional Blackouts of an Extraordinary Presidency. He recently stopped by our Lower Manhattan studios and shared his take on things with our Wayne Cabot. You know, you have the toughest job in America, I think. And no, I'm, I, no, 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 because no, your job no, is no, to no. report on somebody who maybe is the most polarizing figure in modern American history. And as you write this book, this is yes. the last time I plug it, by the way. One, right. one only plug. It's okay. all you get. Only one. Uh, which is which is a piece of journalism as opposed to a piece of you know gotcha or trashing anybody or trying to be dramatic, you, you are seeing journalism as the, uh, the first draft in American history, right? That's what we all aspire right. to be. And yet, here's somebody who's so polarizing, you mention his name, and people go bonkers. You are a very well-liked and respected guy, and now you write a book that puts, that puts you on that third rail of American culture. That's a tough walk, isn't it? Sure, but it's an, it's an important walk to make, and... I'm glad you said the emotional side of the reactions to President Trump because they are vivid and they're ever-present. They are very strong on the pro side, very strong on the negative side. Very few people in America find themselves wondering what they think about the Donald Trump presidency. Right. And what I say in the book is there's a tremendous amount of noise, much of what he generates. I try to step back from that noise and say to myself, all right, having covered four presidents before Donald Trump, how different is he? In what ways is he most importantly and memorably different? What does that set of differences tell us, possibly, about our own expectations, our own desires about American politics and the presidency? And then most importantly, five or ten years from now, whether you love the Trump presidency or hated the Trump presidency, what's still going to be with this country, no matter what, and no matter where you come down in that continuum? And that's what the book's about. And you said it's journalism. Well, what does that mean? Well, one thing it means is everything's on the record. Everything is on the record. Mm. If it's someone is named... It's spelled correctly, their title is given, and the quote is accurately you break it down attributed. by date and, Time. and by subject, exactly. it's all there. It's, and yet, it's not all there, but well, the, the most important things that are relevant to these various stories, things we're living through right now, are there. For example, Jeff Sessions, the president had some critical comments about him recently. Not a new phenomenon, but they were more specific. They were about his hearing performance. I don't know if the president's read the book or not. But if he has or had it summarized to him, that's exactly how that session's chapter starts in my book. There's a conversation now in the administration about inviting Mohammed bin Salman, the heir apparent in Saudi Arabia, to come to the United Nations General Assembly. This book describes the beginnings of the relationship between the Trump administration and the Saudi Arabian government and Mohammed bin Salman in detail you won't find anywhere else. So the journalism lives with us hour by hour. But as a journalist, you go after facts and truth. And the Trump administration, as you point out, and Trump followers see truth as kind of, there's, the, there's facts and truth, but there's the larger truth and larger facts. And that's why all of these pesky details that people get enraged about because they're wrong don't matter. Right. 
I mentioned this in the book several times, and one of the things that I made sure to include in the book is the voices of Trump supporters I met not only during the campaign, 16 months on the campaign, more than 75 Trump rallies, voters I still interact with when I go to presidential rallies for President Trump, and that my colleague Dean Reynolds for CBS does when he does a, one of these monthly sort of Trump supporter check-in pieces for the evening news. Their voices are throughout the book because their voices are not incidental to this story. I think, if not crucial, they're certainly important. And what they mean by that is Trump is onto something that's bigger and more important for them than whether or not he remembers a date accurately or describes a statistic accurately or even describes his own memory accurately. They will forgive him all of that because they wanted someone more aggressive on the issues they cared about, whether that's immigration, taxes, trade, or political correctness, or just a sense of American identity and returning what they regard as some lost strength or some lost confidence to the American way of dealing with itself and thinking about itself and dealing with the world. For them, those are the larger truths. Everything else is not just secondary. It's way, way down their list of importance. And as long as he's focusing on those big things and things that they regard as the most important aspects of a leader, they'll forgive him almost anything. The economy's humming, right? Uh, people will say, well, it was, it's an Obama rally that Trump inherited. Uh, the, uh, there are so many indicators right now that show, hey, things are going great. Uh, I think today, as I came downstairs this morning, the Dow was at an all-time high, mm -hmm. first one since January. Um, so is there a fear that if all this goes away, Trump's in trouble, or will his power of, his cult of personality bypass all of that and he will still be a player regardless of what happens? Well, he'll be a player as long as he's a president. Every American president is a player no matter what, even when their popularity is very low. The presidential powers are pronounced and day-to-day. -day. That's true in every president. What's interesting about the Trump phenomenon is that for the first time we are really seeing a decoupling of the president's performance as graded on the economy, traditionally the most important metric for a president. This should mean, because of where the economy is, that the president and his party should be higher than they are. They're not. That tells you there's some other factor involved. What is that other factor? The president's personality, the way he projects it, the way he stirs the pot, the way he disrupts, the way he sometimes creates anxiety sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. But this, what we are beginning to see, the possibilities and the outlines of a democratic backlash, you would not expect with an economy performing as it is. And it seems that voters are saying, you know what, that's a factor, but it's not the most important factor. Things that we weren't talking about 10 years ago, what are the strength of our institutions? How do we strengthen them? How do we send a message? Usually people send a message when they're deeply dissatisfied about their economic state and the moment, or what they fear it's going to be. On both indices, people are happy. I'm good now, I think it's going to get better. And yet, you have this evidence of an emergency backlash. That's a decoupling, which we haven't seen before, unique again to Trump. You see this president all the time, just as you saw President Obama all the time mm -hmm. and other presidents you've covered. And to you, it's probably, it's your job. To anybody, any of us, if we were to bump into Donald Trump, it would be intimidating. It would be something that would that would probably make us a little bit nervous. Is he an intimidating guy generally? I mean, when he talks to you, does he speak in a way that both charms and intimidates? Sure. And I describe this in a couple of different parts in the book. 
Um, if you make a close inspection of President Trump during press conferences, especially when, let's say, the other guest, the other head of state is reading a statement or answering a question, if there's a cuts camera, there's any isolation on President Trump, watch him. You'll see him occasionally look in the audience, wink, nod, make a... Re He's looking at reporters. He's seeking reporters out because he knows they're hungry to see what his facial expressions are. And he'll look at them and he'll give them a wink like, you're okay with me, at least right now. That's part of this game he relentlessly plays. I talk in the book about one way in which... Does it work? Is it, is it seductive? It can be. I'm pretty skilled at dealing with it. I've been dealing with it for a long time. So it doesn't have the effect on me that I suspect, suspect it has on younger, less experienced reporters. Uh, but it's certainly a game he loves to play all the time. And I talk in the book about a way that I think he is comparable to Lyndon Baines Johnson. Not in a lot of ways, but three specific ways. They both watched a lot of television, they both worked the phones relentlessly, and they both had a very strong sense of how their physical presence could be used to their advantage. Trump loves his own physical presence, he loves to radiate that, he loves to hold and own a room, and importantly, he respects people who also think of themselves the same way who walk into his Oval Office as if it might be theirs. Hmm. He respects that as well. Is that what you do? Well, I, I, when I go in the Oval Office, there are a lot of other people in there. I can't command that room. Right. Uh, but Gary Cohn, for example, his economic advisor, chief economic advisor the first year of the Trump presidency, is that kind of guy. And Trump loved that, even though he's a longtime Democrat, disagreed with him a lot of economic policy. He liked that sense of self. He respects that in others. And that's not just a gender thing. That goes for women, too. Trump has a sense of physicality and projection. He cares about that deeply, thinks about it all the time. And that's one of the ways he sort of picks and chooses who is close to him and who isn't. Best communicator since Reagan? You said he doesn't talk down to people? How did, what was that phrase? So, two ways. Now, I'm not saying he's the best communicator since Reagan. I'm saying for their times, they were the unappreciated masters of the media and medium of their time. For Reagan, it was network television. A lot of people thought he was fumbling at press conferences, but in the end, most people look back on it and say, wow, he understood that medium, and when he needed it most, he used it the best. For President Trump, then candidate Trump, social media was this space that he occupied as no previous political actor had. Dominates it in a way nobody has. He gets a lot of criticism from it, even internally. People wish he wouldn't do it as often. But in the main, I believe, 10 or 15 years from now, when people are sifting all of this, and there'll be a lot to sift, They'll look back on it and say, you know, for better or for worse, he was the master of that medium in that moment. That's what I mean about this comparison with Reagan. But the other phrase you picked up on, I'm glad you did, is he speaks beneath his audience. What does that mean? Well, obviously, it means it's different than speaking down to them. Of course he doesn't do that. But does he meet them at their level? No, he comes beneath them. And what do I mean by that? He makes them feel smarter. He makes them feel as if all the things that they've been talking about, whether it's a work site, the bar, across the kitchen table for 5 or 10, 15 years, are now being said by this national figure. He gets it. And they like, you see, I was right all along. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking this stuff. Why did anyone else say it? He says it. He, he could be president. That attaches them to him in a psychological and political way that I think has proven to be durable and proven to be surprising once the votes were cast on election Since this is author talks, I've got a question about process. Sure. When you write a book, people who do your job, who are doing quick hits on the CBS Evening News, for how much time do you get typically? A minute, minute 30. Minute 30. Minute, minute 45, two minutes if it's a, 
encyclopedic right. television story. So your job is to take everything that's happened and be quick and concise, and there's no t You don't even have five seconds to spare when they give you that, that no. clock. Here, how am I doing? <laughs> Here, you take a little bit of information and expand on it. It's right. counter to how you do your job daily. Is it difficult to to write long form like this when you're trained to do exactly the opposite? No, because I was trained as a print reporter. I was a print reporter for 17 years before I got into the world of television. I'm kind of an accidental television correspondent. It wasn't my great ambition in life. My great ambition in life was to write a book before I was 35, and I did. It's my fourth book. I love long form writing. It's uh, the thing I left television when I left Fox and went to National Journal, became, went to, back to a life as a magazine writer, thoroughly enjoyed that. This was actually therapy for me, this book, because my nose is up against the glass of this presidency every single day. It was helpful for me to step back and to push myself back from all of the tumult, all of the noise, the tornadoes, the cyclonic spasms, as I described them at one point in the book, and ask a kind of basic question. What's going to last? What, again, this is not thumb on the scale. Great presidency, terrible presidency. What's going to last and what are we going to be dealing with? What's the next president going to be dealing with? Because this president was elected at this time and made these decisions. As a reporter, you are suspect these days. Sure. Right? And we have some very, very well-informed people in the audience we were talking to earlier who said that they perceive you as a guy who plays it down the middle, which is everything you want to hear. But they think you're a Republican. Does that, I don't know if you are or not. It doesn't matter to me. But, but does that matter? Do, does, should reporters identify themselves ideo ideologically or politically? That's up to each and every reporter. I don't think if you identify yourself or register as a Republican, that makes you suspect. Your journalism is your journalism. Everyone can make their own analysis of that. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a registered independent. I have voted for Democrats for president. I have voted for Republicans for president. I voted for an independent candidate, Andre Maru, in 1992. Long before that, it was fashionable to vote for an independent candidate. He was a member of the Alaska legislature at the time. Um, so I've sort of been all over the map. Uh, I'm very unpredictable, which means I don't get a lot of political phone calls because they don't know what to make of me. So that is actually strategic on my part. But ideology can be separate from journalism. And everyone has a set of references about issues. Everyone has a personal point of view. And any journalist who says he or she doesn't is kidding themselves and trying to kid you. The most important factor of journalism is to set that aside, pull your emotions out of it, chase the story, be curious in both directions, and distill things as best you can that day, and then distill it a better way the next day. And that's part of the process that's revealed in the book. Well, as long as you're outing yourself as, in terms of who you voted for. I voted not for Trump or Obama last time. I voted for the stoner guy, Gary Johnson. <laughs> I know several people who did, including my wife. Yeah, well, <laughs> really? Yes. I'd like to meet your wife. She sounds like fun. <laughs> I, th I tend to think of him as a triathlete, but, you know, whatever. Uh, well, okay, no, I know. I'm, I'm, shorthand. We're talking short. See, I did and, the same thing. And I think that's a great thing, down. a stoner triathlete. I think that's a really amazing <laughs> That's an accomplishment, right? I, there. I think so. That person should be president for crying out loud. That's why I voted for him. Somebody else wanted to know about Kavanaugh. Um, and, uh, as we speak, it's unclear if the nomination is going to go forward. And if it doesn't, um, and it seems like it will, right? But if uh -huh. it doesn't, is there time to sneak somebody else in before the midterms? No, that's why it's going to happen. And so much of the Kavanaugh story you can find the seeds of in the chapter on Neil Gorsuch. Because it not only explains 
how Neil Gorsuch was selected. It explains how the Federalist Society laid the foundation for Trump to put out the list of Supreme Court nominees not once but twice during the campaign, how crucial that was to attaching to his campaign lots of wobbly, unconvinced, or otherwise unconvinced Republicans. And it also explains the risks that Mitch McConnell took from the perspective of Democrats, ghastly, unforgivable risks he took in 2016, not to even give a hearing to Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee to replace Antonin Scalia, and how much that fed into the overall conversation within Senate Republicans, the country at large, and certainly President Trump and his White House counsel, Don McGahn, who worked hand-in-glove with Mitch McConnell in that process. All of the grievance that Democrats have, and the reason they held this, by their own admission, I'm not accusing them of anything, by their own admission held this back until the last, was because of all their deep-seated grievances about procedural decisions Republicans made. They had a score to settle. Yes, they definitely had a score to settle. And now Republicans say, well, we have to follow the process. And Democrats are like, what process? Hmm. So all of those seeds are in that chapter. You can learn a lot about the rich partisan acrimony, history, and negativity around all court nominees now, especially the Supreme Court in the Neil Gorsuch chapter. We have the holidays coming up. Uh, The Jewish holidays just happened. Mm -hmm. We've got the Thanksgiving coming up. Christmas, families, everyone gets together. And what's your advice to all of us who are in that room with our uncles and aunts and our kids? about talking Trump. Major Garrett walks into a bar. Yeah. <laughs> you've, got, right. you've got a couple of, uh, of Trump supporters sure. here. You've got a couple of, uh, of, of guys who look like they come from Brooklyn over here. Right. And, and they all want to know, hey, what do you think about this guy Trump? Help us out when we go to our, to our Thanksgiving table. How do we navigate that really just difficult conversation? So here's one suggestion. Um, and it might at least give a different perspective on the conversation to come, which I know you're describing, this, this intensity, this deep sense of emotional reaction. One thing is true, I think, about Trump that is also and was also true about President Obama. Near the end of his presidency, some pollsters did this thought experiment. They would describe things that had occurred during the Obama administration and attach words that President Obama himself had spoken about those things. Took his name away from it, laid them before Republicans and said, what do you think? They're like, wow, I kind of like that. That's pretty, uh, would you be, might you think about voting for someone like that? I really think I might. I, how strongly? Well, some said, very strongly. Some said, well, I certainly, and then they said, all right, all this is from President Obama. Whoosh, all that evaporated. Isn't that something? Okay. I think you could open up the conversation and say, don't you think that would possibly be true of Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. That very same thought experiment. Think about North Korea. All the tumult last year, but where are we? The Korean Peninsula is now talking to itself, South Korea, North Korea, in ways it simply wasn't a year ago. Mm-hmm. Reunification is now a real topic. I've been watching, because I've covered the American presidency since 1992, that stall and going fits and starts for nearly 30 years. It's a fundamentally different place. Does Donald Trump deserve all the credit for that? No, but he's not incidental to it. Look at the economy. Play some things on the economy. Lay before Democrats things about challenging China on trade. Take, take, take Trump's name out of it. They've been saying that for 20 years. Yeah. So you can maybe start the conversation that way. We, were, we did this. Our country's been doing this with two different leaders. Maybe we just step back a little bit, take our own sense of what the name represents, and look at what has actually happened, and can we talk about that? 
That's tough because that means we have to have facts at our command. <laughs> or, everybody wants to or, talk facts. Or, or if, if, you, if you don't want to necessarily have all these government reports and data, just say, is there something about where our politics has taken us that the names and the brands represent something larger that maybe obscures some deeper, subtler, and more unifying truths about what we like in the country and what we think works. One of the things that we fail to do in this country, I think, is talk at any length about what actually works. Most of our country works. Most of the world wants to be like us. We do a lot more things right than wrong. But we're Americans, and we like to get better, and we like to think of ourselves as more capable of getting better, more rapidly than we're satisfied with. But our politics tends to tell us far more things are dysfunctional or falling apart than actually are working. That's a great place to end it. With Major Garrett and a book that we think the president's been reading. <laughs> Major Garrett, CBS News Chief White House Correspondent. Great talking with you Thank in you person. So much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's where we bring this week's wild ride to a stop. Next week, we travel back to the All Souls universe of witches, vampires, demons, bloods, with bestseller Deborah Harkness. Follow the magic that is our Twitter and Instagram accounts at WCBS880Books. And feel free to email us your thoughts, suggestions, what you're reading, or just to say hi at books at intercom.com. We look forward to hearing from you.